nobody should come in here and tell you what to do without really understanding the business. And I think that the thing I've really learned over my career is for the first 30 days, I always come in and try to understand why they do it a certain way. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, I've got a really good episode that is with my good friend, Mark Reese, who came from being the former CMO of FanDuel, one of the most disruptive companies that I think has come on the environment in a long time, and is really somebody that's taken a classic training in direct marketing and has brought it into this new world of direct-to-consumer and emerging brands. So, Mark, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Well, thank you. So I want to start a little bit with the journey that you've been on your, your career. You know, for a decade, you were the general manager and vice president of marketing at Provide Commerce, which is the e-commerce company behind ProFlowers and Sherry's Berries and a handful of other brands that really pioneered direct and performance marketing. But I don't think people fully appreciate that growth story of a company that went from $1 million to $100 million in just four years. So how did starting your career on the direct side of marketing a business prepare you for this new world of performance marketing? Yeah, that's a good question. So interestingly, I got my start before the internet existed, and I started in direct mail. And direct mail was kind of the original performance marketing because you had you were renting mailing lists, you'd run three catalogs with different co- covers, so you know an ABC split test. And you drop them in the mail and you'd read the results. And so I got my start there. And um, when the internet was coming around, I'd be reading the Wall Street Journal, you know, and I'd be saying, boy, I got I to get in on this. And so I was very early on at ProFlowers with, you know, just a handful of people in the room. Our CEO at ProFlowers was an operator very early on. I mean, he had worked at Intuit, working for Scott Cook, Bill Harris, Bill Campbell, some of the legends at Intuit. And so... Really, I, you know, I already had a, and he valued the basis of direct marketing, realizing that what we were doing offline was going to be online on steroids. And so he really valued my skill set. And I learned a ton from him around not just more on the direct marketing side, but also just how to run a business. So, you know, ProFlowers was a million dollar business when we started it. And we were very, that was the heyday when people were spending an enormous amount of money on deals. And our CEO was just like, look, it just doesn't make sense, you know, to spend $100 to make 20, like we're not going to do it. And so we really just organically built that up. So I was vice president of marketing of the ProFlowers brand for about five years. And we were just very like systematic and growing. And it's a little bit of a tricky business because of inventory. So if you're going to run Mother's Day is coming up here, but you have to order the right amount of flowers and make sure your demand hits it. So we were very systematic in the way we grew that. And that company went public in 2003 under Provide Commerce, which was Pro Flowers, as well as we launched some food brands as well, and then sold to Liberty Media in uh, 2006, which is John Malone's business, for $477 million. And so the second half of my career there, I really kind of did the same thing that I did on the pro side, which is taking Sherry's Berries being our largest brand and some of our other food brands and building that up. So really that blueprint of how to do it is, you know, we applied that, we're systematic and took that from, you know, a million to a hundred million dollars. 
so just a really great story. And, and in fact, today I was just talking to somebody, the, the folks that provide are everywhere. Like it, you're going to bump into somebody that worked to provide at some point if you're in the D2C space. And so from there, I was there for 12 years. I went to a healthcare startup called Brighter for a year, working for a very successful entrepreneur named Jake Weinbaum. And that was, that was great. And in healthcare, I recognized that maybe it wasn't my lifelong dream to be in healthcare, although I think their mission was, was great and the company was great. And so I left. And then to your point, I joined FanDuel. They're doing about $5 million a year in revenue in February of 2013. And I was CMO there for uh, four and a half years through June of 2017. And that's a whole nother story. But the quick synopsis is it was really a tale of two experiences. The first half being completely euphoric with massive growth. And it felt like the, you know, nothing, the, the good times couldn't end. And the second half around regulation, whether it was attorney generals or what have you. And uh, it just was a very different business. And so I left there in June of 2017. And that was at the moment where DraftKings and FanDuel tried to merge. And the FTC gave a negative opinion on that. And so they were staying separate companies. And I decided to move on. And then since then, I've done lots of different engagements with either being interim CMO or buying media for folks, advising companies, et cetera. So sorry, that's 30 years. There's a lot to say in 30 years, but that's kind of been my path. I love it. Well, I want to talk uh, specifically about that that massive growth that you said, you know, you saw with ProFlowers becoming Provide Commerce, and then you did it again with FanDuel, seeing going from single-digit millions to well over $100 million in revenue. As an executive that's in that very early stage and grows with the company, how does the, the job of an executive and a marketer change during that time period of startup to just trying to keep the wheels on of massive growth? Really, like there were some there there were quite a bit of similarities between the two businesses, and then some things that were were different. Actually, I think the provide pro experience was a little bit harder just due to the inventory piece, but. So yeah, so I, I, you know, in the beginning, you know, you're effectively, you know, you're in the trenches doing the work as well as, you know, managing a few folks. But if I look at my FanDuel experience and I went from, you know, 10 people on my marketing team to a hundred people on my marketing team over the course of two years. And so for me, like that experience, you know, as, as I have a hundred people on my team, it was really around just, you know, getting the right resources in place, managing those folks. And I did virtually no day to day. Whereas on the provide side, I was always kind of doing a little bit of day-to-day -day as well as growing the business. The provide piece had the inventory piece that made it quite a bit, forecasting became quite a bit more challenging. Where at FanDuel, I remember at one point we increased our budget going into uh, football season by, I want to say it was like 100 million. It was a pretty substantial gain. And short of like the engineering team and the customer service team, you know, grinding them down with, with traffic and, and tickets, you could do it. Whereas like on the pro side, you just couldn't do anything like that. So the pro side kind of forced you to be very disciplined. Whereas on the FanDuel side, we could be a little more freewheeling due to the fact that we had no inventory. And so, so yeah, so I think like, you know, the, the challenges that you face as a marketer as you grow is what every marketer faces around attribution and what's really working and all those pieces. And so, and I think it's gotten like the more I do it, I think it's getting better and I think it's getting easier but I don't think any marketer is is happy with their attribution. But I think everybody's kind of starting to get closer to the answer. So I don't know if that answers your question, Dave, but that was some of my experience in those kind of rapid growth businesses. Yeah, no, for sure. And how about on the talent side? Because I've found that 
you know, the people that get you from one to 10 million might not be the ones that get you from 10 to a hundred, but at the same token, you're just trying to bring everybody on the ship because you're growing so fast. So how did you evolve with that and think about your team and the, the evolution of the company and your marketing team? So I had a mentor tell me something that I never forgot. He told me people make products, products don't make people. And I always took that like, that really is true. And so, so I spent an enormous amount of time on the people side because ultimately it, it just comes down to talent, like good ideas with bad talent won't work and bad ideas with good talent won't work. And so to your point on, on that piece, yeah, you really have to understand kind of what you need. And also I'd say because of my pro experience, really understand things that maybe didn't go right at ProFlowers and, and what to look out for. So on the ProFlowers side, it was a very drug response business and really brand wasn't that important to the company. And then we built just kind of like a very, a very hard DR business. And that said, we grew it to almost, you know, half a billion dollars in, in value. Um, but what I learned through that was if you just are a pure DR company, then you're just a transaction and you don't stand for more than that. And eventually it will just slow down. It will grind down because every single time you go back for your retention for an order, it's just another jump ball. And so what you really want to do is, is while you're building direct response and the transactional side, think about where you sit in the marketplace. And I can give you some examples of companies I think are doing that well. So at FanDuel, one thing I did was there were very direct response as well. But I brought a, a brand marketer in that had come from Interbrand around brand strategy, knowing that eventually that would be important. And so that that was um, it took a while to get him ingrained in the business because everybody was so direct response. like, well, what does this guy do? What's he going to do? But eventually we got to the point where we actually had to rebrand the business, given all the changes in uh, with attorney generals and kind of some of the stuff the PR had said and, and kind of consumer sentiment being negative. And so it was really good that we had someone like that on the team. But yeah, you, you definitely find the early stage people, a lot of times they just don't fit in the, long, the the bigger term piece. And so we had a couple very scrappy entrepreneurial people at FanDuel that were really useful in the beginning. But as we grew, you know, making changes behind the scenes that now had to be submitted as a ticket and, and they just they just didn't fit in the company. So we ended up having they were incredibly useful, but there was a there was a pretty big handoff between very entrepreneurial folks and uh, and people that were you know more seasoned over time. And both are valuable. Some could do the whole gamut from soup to nuts, but there was a chunk of people that they were incredibly useful in the beginning, and actually was a bit difficult to work with them towards the end, just because the company had changed so much. That's perfect. So you know, speaking about FanDuel, you know. I would argue that FanDuel versus DraftKings was kind of the the Coke versus Pepsi, the Uber versus Lyft. Like one of those just the massive battle of two companies that were leading a category and going category going after it. You know, I spent a lot of my time at PG where it was, you know, Old Spice versus Axe and Secret versus Dove. So that it's a powerful motivator, but at the same time, it can sometimes be a distraction of paying too much attention to what the other guy is doing. So how did you keep your team really focused on the core metrics that matter to your business with acquisition costs and retention and not just chasing that, you know, the next league deal or the next uh, sports team signing on board? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say my ProFlowers experience or the provide, we were very internally focused. Like our CEO didn't believe any of the incumbents could touch what we were doing in terms of 
price point or execution. And we were very internally focused, very little external focus uh, on the competitors. At FanDuel, we were pretty focused on the competitor. Like it was, we were checking that pretty hard. And, and probably in hindsight, we probably spent too much time watching what they were doing. But we, we had, so on the unit economic side, our CAC was half that of DraftKings. We had, you know, better retention. Um, not to say that they didn't do a good job, but we were very focused on it. We had, you know, team and league deals that weren't as expensive. And so, so we did focus on that stuff. DraftKings ended up raising 2x what we did. And so they definitely deployed more capital. So even if your CAC is half and they spend twice as much, it kind of puts you at parity. My profiler's experience, believe it or not, was really helpful at FanDuel with, in particular, seasonality. So I had come from a business where Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, it was Mother's Day, for example, was 40% of our company's profit. So pretty much everything that shipped in that week made or, break, made or broke your year. At FanDuel, when I looked out there and saw the first couple of years they had done stuff, looking at the data, it was very seasonal as well. So we caught on to that quite a bit quicker than DraftKings. It took them a couple of years to really flow the media similar. They eventually caught on to it, but that was a big differentiator for us where we were, we learned early on in the season, the current mindset from a user was I draft my fantasy team at the beginning of the year. And on FanDuel, they would think about picking a team at the beginning of the year, even though you could draft a team at the end of the year, join your first contest mid-season. mid, mid uh, season. People kind of, their current behavior was drafting early. And so they just, you know, did that uh, with us. And so we had substantially better CACs in the beginning than they did because we really understood seasonality. And I kind of chalked that up to my provide days of really understanding how to buy media that way and flow it. But eventually we got kind of closer to parity over time. So yeah, so I think we, to, to the point of competition, we were, we definitely watched what they were doing as well. And I'd say the one area that they really, or this is an interesting piece, a, a, a challenge I think companies have. FanDuel had kind of proven that, hey, this could work. And we actually had something to lose. DraftKings coming in, after FanDuel, a couple of years later, they kind of had nothing to lose because it, they had, they didn't have anything. Whereas FanDuel actually showed the valuation, they showed they had a business, and so DraftKings was very aggressive. And I mean, to their credit, they took they took risks that FanDuel wasn't willing to take, but it really paid off for them. So they would do sports that maybe FanDuel said, you know, like golf, we're not comfortable launching golf. And DraftKings said, "Okay, we'll we'll launch golf, and if if something happens, we'll just we'll just take it down." And that there's a couple, a bunch of examples like that where they were they they innovated and iterated much faster than we did, and that really helped them catch up to us as well. So that is an interesting question, though. If you're kind of coming in behind, well, I'd say the other piece there is that FanDuel had had a different business model when we they launched the company. And then they pivoted to this kind of daily fantasy idea that a couple other folks had done, but obviously FanDuel had done it done it really well. And so the site, the back end, all that was designed for something else. And so as many companies do, entrepreneurs, they say, well, we'll take what well, the tech we have, we'll test out the daily fantasy stuff and see if it works. And then if it works, we'll then replatform and blah, blah, blah. Well, what happens is when it works, you don't have time to replatform because the business is off the rails. And so DraftKings also, when they built the daily fantasy systems in their site, they knew what they were building from the beginning. So we always, in addition to them iterating quickly, we had some challenges just on the tech side because it was never really designed for that. And we were doing 
so much volume so quickly. I mean, that business grew, you know, what could have taken, you know, six or seven years, that thing grew in, in two or three. So yeah, that was some pretty interesting case study work there with both companies. I love that. So it's a bit uh, into the weeds a little bit, but you made a comment in there that you knew that your CAC was half of theirs. How'd you actually find that between two private companies? How'd you get that data? Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. So a couple ways. One is there's a bunch of competitive sources out there for tracking. So Cantor Media, for example, you can have your agency pull you. They estimate kind of what your spends are. And you could tell there was a couple um, third-party sites that could would measure kind of liquidity on the sites as well as we could actually see the DraftKings lobby. So we could actually see liquidity. It's public and they could see ours. So we had a pretty good idea that we were deploying quite a bit less capital and seeing similar results. And then also as we as we came closer to the merge, so we, that was kind of a cool piece of, of data that we had pre-merge. And then as we got closer to merging with them, we weren't sharing all the info, but you had some sense that you know our CACs were better. No, we were deploying, both companies were deploying so much money. I mean, it wasn't like one company is just spending like, you know, 10% more. Like it was, you're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. So so we we knew our unit economics were better than theirs were. But they deployed, you know, to their credit, they were actually really, really good at raising money. So they raised, you know, 2x what we did. And that kind of kept us at parity. So. Gotcha. Now that makes sense. So moving on from FanDuel, since leaving, you followed your passion for leading, growing, and developing direct-to-consumer businesses, both as an advisor, but also as an interim CMO with some pretty amazing companies like Jewel and Loot Crate and Books and several others. So when you step into a role as an interim CMO, what are you looking to accomplish with your time working with the company? And what are you setting up with the CEO that you're going to to really deliver. Yeah, so it's interesting because it depends so I'd say like of of those businesses they all had like different objectives going in. So one was kind of looking to make a change with the you know the current leadership. Another was just a highly you know Jewel Vapor was just massive growth. And then Loot Crate had been Inc Magazine's fastest growing private company that had gotten a bit out over its skis and was kind of looking to reestablish growth. So each, you know, it's to kind of starts with what are you trying to do? Where's the company at? And that really comes from talking to the CEO. And I will say companies that are at the 100, 200 level employees, like my experience as the CEO go, goes, so goes the company. So as a marketer, I can go as far as the CEO lets me take it. So they might take some of my recommendations, but not, but not all of those. And I, that, that's, I can only do as much as, uh, as they'll let me. But yeah, each of those had kind of different objectives. And so it really just kind of depends. But, you know, having done this for so long, I kind of knew 
everybody has similar needs, right? So like my passion is just building D to C. It's not necessarily sports or flowers or what have you. It's really just taking a business and growing it. And so the blueprint to do that is pretty consistent among companies. So everybody's trying to acquire customers. Everybody's trying to retain customers. Everybody wants to build a brand. And so those, those things are all the same. The way to execute those is different. So each company, I would approach, I would do it differently. But the way I think about it is very similar. And so it's really about me kind of starting there. How are you acquiring customers? What are the marketing channels you're using? How are you rolling that up into attribution? What marketing offers are you using? How do you buy your media? Like they're just getting under the hood of all that. And what I'd say is what I find, and I do a lot of other media buying for companies and advising. And I'd say a lot of companies, what I found is they're doing the right things. They're just not doing those things right. So another example would be a company I advised, they were buying Facebook. They're spending about 100K a month at a $400 CAC. And we ended up getting to a million dollars a month at a hundred dollar CAC. And it was, they were actually buying, they were buying Facebook. They're doing the right things. Their just approach wasn't right. And so all those things kind of come in. And so once I do that assessment, then I can say, okay, let's move these. Let's do these. Let's tweak these. Let's rent some talent here. Like you don't need to hire this. Let's rent it until it gets big enough. Then we'll hire it. But that approach, the way I, the blueprint is always the same the recommendations are going to change. And so that's kind of how I think about it. Does that make sense? It does. And so dig in on that talent piece a little bit, because I found myself since leaving Rockfish, I've been doing what I call kind of this executive marketing coaching, where it's getting in with companies and just figure out what, what do they need in their marketing organization? And what's the strategy versus the tactics? And one of the things I've found is that there's broadly defined kind of two types of companies. There's ones that have hired so much tactical that they're at a point that they just they need somebody strategic to come in at a senior level. And that might be an interim CMO or that might be a head of marketing that comes in permanently. But then I found the other one, which is the one I think is almost more interesting, where they've got a team and they've got somebody on that team that has a chance to grow into the CMO, but they need coaching and mentoring to get there. Because they haven't run the playbook before, but they need a coach to help them. What have you seen as you've jumped in with some of these companies? Yeah, I'd say, gosh, like I said, everyone's different. But so one example was they they had a CMO, you know, talented person, but just wasn't working out the way they had hoped. And so in something like that, I just had to come in and provide that blueprint I talked about. And then really after that, assess, you know, what they had. And sometimes I've also found, I'll use a sports analogy, but sometimes you have a player that was a 300 hitter. And then, you know, a couple of years later, they're batting like 200. And you're like, what the hell? Like they should be better. And sometimes people need a chain as a scenery. So sometimes you have the talent, but they're just burnt out of that company or whatever. So I, I've also seen that where it's like, hey, you're really talented, but this is not the place for you anymore. And so the other one I went to was a massively, you know, rapid growth company that just didn't have a CMO. They, were, they had tons of very talented people that were all kind of siloed running around. And so trying to harness that and bring that in. And then the other one was a company where they had had a lot of talent and a lot of that talent had left. And so, you know, they had to kind of rebuild it up. So yeah, I haven't had, I have not had experiences or I haven't had as many where somebody could be the CMO, 
but I think as when you come in as a contractor, it's like they want to see results. So, you know, I'm really kind of just like saying a lot of stuff that I'll recommend, I'll get to some of it and the rest of it, like they have to kind of take it on and I'll kind of help them set that up and then they kind of take it from there. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's, they're all different. And so you just have to, um, you have to really assess where they're at. That's, that's why you can't, you can't say this is what I laugh too. When people will say to me, well, just, you know, what, what, what should my brand be or what should I do? And it's like, if I'm telling you what your brand should be without knowing like who your customers are, who your prospects are, what motivates them, what are the barriers to trial? Nobody should come in here and tell you what to do without really understanding the business. And I think that the thing I've really learned over my career is for the first 30 days, I always come in and try to understand why they do it a certain way because you'll come into a company and find like, this is really inefficient and doesn't seem to make any sense, but eventually it clicks. You go, okay, they're doing it in a really inefficient way, but I understand why. And I think what, in that, and once you do that, you really garner a lot of trust with the team to say, hey, I get why you're doing it. The worst thing you can do is come in and just be like, you're doing everything wrong. You guys know what you're doing. It, when you you find out, oh, wait, they are doing they are doing it wrong, but they have to do it wrong because of these three other issues. That they don't have tech support or they don't have operational support or whatever. And so, so yeah, so, but like I said, like that line of people make products, products don't make people is so critical. I mean, you just can't, the best strategy without talent won't work. Like you just can't do it. And I even think, you know, when I talk to younger folks or more junior folks that like when I came up through school, I don't think the point of how to hire talent and how to retain talent, it's so important. It really is everything, especially as you're a CMO. That's what it's about. Because if you can't do that, it doesn't matter how good of a marketer you are, you're not going to be successful. Yeah, without doubt. So, you know, many of the brands that you've worked with, they've been disrupting these kind of historical industries through the the creation of new categories. You had FanDuel change sports betting with daily fancy sports. You know, Juul is the smoking alternative, really creating this category of electronic cigarettes. And in the last few episodes, I've had a lot of our friends from the bullpen capital family on. So we had Paul Martino talking about how bullpen looks at the world. Dave Peterson talking about the concept of play bigger and category creation. So what lessons have you learned in terms of best practices for companies that are changing an industry by creating a new category? It's interesting because some are, you know, taking a, a spin on an existing category. Others are, to your point, like just creating something new. So it's interesting. So if I think about Jewel, you know, Jewel had been chunking at that. Uh, so like the backstory is that the two guys that founded that were Stanford product guys, not product in the website sense, but actually like developing product. And they had been smokers and they were looking for an alternative. And so they created the the Jewel vapor device and and it's interesting they actually did that because they just they they didn't build it for the scale that today they built they did it because they just wanted to see if they could do it and thought it'd be a cool business and so like the jewel the device today i think it had like 29 different components to put together to make it so it wasn't built for scale but it's it's a really high quality device but they were chunking at that for like six years it really wasn't until they hit this kind of tipping point where things really took off. And then it was just, you know, complete mayhem trying to keep up with demand. And so they really stuck to it for a long time. So to your point, I'm like, like some of these things just take off quickly and others like take time. And, um, and then some companies have great ideas that are just too early. Like I think about a lot of these early grocery delivery companies that, you know, 
started early and just kind of faded. And now like there's Instacart and other companies that are doing really well. So it's like, you, you have to be, the idea can be right. The timing can be wrong, but it's, it's neat to see a company kind of grow into a category and Loot Crate probably another great example where kind of the early folks around subscription, the kind of original unboxing company and really built that business off of influencers. And I'm not a geek and gamer person, but you know, who knew how big that category was with just so many people that follow it. And so they did just a heck of a job building that and really just, it was unprecedented. They really didn't have any blueprint to pull from. And so the talent piece in terms of like, because I know that's a big component of it is they're still acquiring customers, they're still retaining customers, et cetera, et cetera. So that part is similar. But yeah, I think the challenge on each of these businesses, like for Loot Crate, was really around forecasting because those components are all sourced out of China. So how do you forecast six months out on a rocket ship? Oh, and by the way, we're going to launch a few other crates to widen the pie as well as help on the retention side. How do you know what that's going to look like in six months? It was really hard. So they ran into challenges like that in that business. But I mean, they, they really built that thing quickly and, and, you know, to hundreds of millions of dollars. So yeah, it's an interesting challenge. And then WAG, I guess, is another one I've done some advising for and helped them very early on to build that business where building that kind of dog walking marketplace with, you know, getting the supply and demand and the challenges on those businesses where, you know, early on it was, they had plenty of supply, they just didn't have the demand and kind of how do you, how do you keep the supply happy so you're not just doing a dog walk a week while you know driving the demand side and matching all that together? So it's really about, too, I think the other piece is all of it comes to being a problem solver and really like understanding that because, you know, as you know, a lot of stuff you get in your day-to-day life are things you know, like you haven't seen. I mean, that happens all the time. I did some mentoring at my university where some someone asked me, is there ever a day you go to work and then somebody asks you something you don't know how to do? And I'm thinking all the time. <laughs> I'm like, this is how you play the game. And so really just being a problem solver and really understanding how to think about it and do that is essential, especially for these businesses that, to your point, have no real blueprint on how to do them. But I think what you need to do is if you're a loot crate and you have operational things is how do you find the people that are really good at forecasting and planning and operations and bring those folks in and try to get ahead of that curve because you know you're you're really not just you're not just worried about fulfillment today you're worried about 3 6 12 months down the line yeah so that uh, that point of problem solving it's actually one that I love hearing you say that I've been toying with this concept of continuous beta and it's this idea that the people at companies and the companies themselves need to be in this concept of continuous beta, perpetual change, new ways to do things, not getting comfortable. And just thinking about if somebody was going to change my business today, how would they do it? Because I need to figure it out before them. So how do you think people can really stay on top of that, constantly learning, constantly trying new things and constantly changing an industry versus getting comfortable with that, what that industry is? Yeah, I think, you know, there's that saying kind of, you know, you know, evolve or die. And it's really true. I mean, I think like in a business that's in rapid growth, even though like, and I certainly fan to for like the good times that never end, like they will end. And so like, you have to think about where is my growth going to come from next? And even if growth, like I said, is, ro- is rocking and rolling today, like it's going to slow down. And so, you know, if you're a company that, um, and pro is probably a really good example of that, but 
you know, we were doing flowers and man, it was, it was a rocket ship, but you know, our, our CEO was, was very good operationally to say, you know, what, where's fine. Like this cat, like we knew that category wasn't a growth category, but we knew we we're taking share. How are we going to continue to grow? And slowly over time, as we started to see retention slide, the customers were saying, we love you, but we don't want to send flowers for the third year in a row for a birthday. And so, you know, that's how we got into launching other brands on our site that was around chocolate covered strawberries, gift baskets, we had a food and meat brand, other things that helped grow both acquisition, which we finally figured out there, but also retention. So I think like a paranoia around growth is essential and, and just know that the good times will slow for all companies. And you even see it with some of these companies that you would think would never slow, like you know the GEs of the world and stuff. Like You just have to always think like, where's growth gonna come from next? And the other thing I think is, is an interesting point that I kind of, and I've always been a, a smaller to mid-sized company, guys. I've never worked for, like you had David P&G or Coca-Cola or what have you, but it's always interesting to me how what you know Dollar Shave and Harry's have done in shaving, where you have like companies just completely focused on shaving all day long, thousands of people. These guys kind of come in and make that work, or Red Bull, you know, your Coca-Cola or Pepsi, you're, you're only thinking about beverage, and then there's this energy category that comes up. And um, and again, I haven't worked at a big company, but it's an interesting case how these big companies that you have so many people that you would think all they do all day is think about beverage, but there's just so much opportunity to come in and, and make a difference. So I just think the paranoia on growth is essential. And just when the times are good is when you really should be worried about it. Because when the times are bad, it's hard to think clearly. <laughs> it becomes Everything becomes much harder. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. It's one of the uh, the quotes I end pretty much every one of my presentations on predicting to turn is uh, one by you know the guys at uh, Basecamp of you know the sooner you can stop worrying about the present, the sooner you can get to work on figuring out the future. And that uh, paranoia that you have to figure out the future because something's going to change. Not enough business leaders, I think, are focused on that every day. Uh, I agree. It, it, and look, I mean, when things are good, it's it does feel euphoric. It's such a, it's, it's probably the most exciting part of being a, a business person, exec and entrepreneur to see it feels so good, but you just have to know that that's when you should be like, wait, you know, I, and I think the quote you're saying from base, the base camp folks is, is a good one. So, yeah. And so, you know, the truth is like people love to talk about what they've done about themselves and, you know, you just take people that have been through it, take them to lunch or coffee, or whatever, and just ask them, Certainly, everybody likes to talk about themselves, and uh, and people will share a lot of information. So, you know, it's 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 out there, but it, it is it is hard to be in a rapid growth company where you're so focused on the day to day, and then to think about the future. But you know, it happens to everybody. So, I think it's good advice. Perfect. Well, that's a great note to end on. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to share everything you've learned on this uh, kind of great journey you've had on your career. So, thank you again, and uh, love and honor. Thank you much, Dave. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.